Thanks, Athol, for that warm introduction. Uh, thanks for staying. It's good to see you. Uh, keep that passage open as we go through uh, this afternoon. Now, you might have moved across the town. You might have moved across the country. You might even have moved across the world. Uh, your reasons for doing so might have been theological, biblical, sociological, uh, what were the others, pragmatic, or eschatological, or they might even have been all five. Actually, you might have hit the bullseye and they may have been your motivations, your reasons for going, but the fact is that you've done it. You've done it. You've gone and you've planted a new church to reach the lost and to disciple the nations. You've done your research and you have brought what you thought were the answers to the unanswered questions in your community. But pretty soon you've realized that the questions weren't just unanswered, they were actually unasked. On the one hand, you found the seemingly impenetrable wall of religion. You know what I mean by that? On the one hand, it may be uh, the thriving Islamic community just down the road from you. Uh, they seem to overflow their mosques every week, and it's even the case that on Fridays, they have to get the local police out. To, to direct traffic around the crowds that spill out onto the road. There are so many of them, and they're so devoted. And they're not asking questions. They know what their worldview is. They're committed to it, and they're actually assuming the front foot in proselytizing the community that you've moved to to bring this good news to. And the other side of that religious wall is the shadow of Christianity, which still hangs over so much of our continent. The shadow of Christianity embodied as it is on the one hand by liberalism, but then on the other hand by shrill fundamentalism. It's the worst kind of incomplete Christianity that Vaughan was speaking about this morning. The liberals, you see, they're not interested in you because you're a fundamentalist. And the fundamentalists, they're not interested in you because you're too liberal for them. You even wear jeans and sometimes they see you in a checked shirt. See, both of these groups, the liberals and the ultra, ultra conservative fundamentalist, batten down the hatches, we don't talk to anybody, uh, religious people, both of them feel threatened for different reasons, but they certainly aren't interested in engaging with what you have to say, and they certainly aren't interested in any of the questions that you might be asking about the culture, about their worldview, about what they think. On the one hand, you have the seemingly impenetrable wall of religion. On the other hand, you have secularism. As Jamie Smith put it in his preface uh, to the little book, How Not to Be Secular, uh, he says this, your secular neighbors aren't looking for answers. For some bit of information that is missing from their mental maps to the contrary, they have completely different maps. You've realized that instead of nagging questions about God or the afterlife, your neighbors are oriented by all sorts of longings and projects and quests for significance. There doesn't seem to be anything missing from their lives. So you can't just come proclaiming the good news of a Jesus who fills their God-shaped hole. They don't have any sense that the secular lives that they've constructed are missing a second floor. In many ways, they've constructed webs of meaning that provide almost all the significance they need in their lives, though a lot hinges on that almost. Suffice it to say that the paradigms you brought to your ministry have failed to account for your experience thus far. You thought you were moving to a world like yours just minus God, but in fact you've moved to a different world entirely. 
For some time, we've, we've thought that the new atheists are the people we need to engage with, Messrs. Dawkins and Hitchens and uh, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, more so in the States. They've been the prophets of a secular age. We've thought they're the guys, if we can get down their arguments and engage them and, and, and you know, kind of engage with that whole way of thinking, well then we'll make some progress. Virtually nobody in my local area. One guy, a guy called Paul, who actually I really enjoy engaging with because he's got opinions and he wants to argue and he wants to talk about lots of this sort of stuff. But apart from him, I mean, there are some people obviously that identify with new atheism, but as one Christian philosopher has described them, he says they are a loud, vocal, saber-rattling minority. And in my experience, that's the case. I don't think the new atheists are speaking for the secular cultures that we are trying to engage across our continent. Europe is hard, hard, largely disinterested ground for the gospel. When we got started two years ago, we saw one person converted in the first year. A single soul out of 12,000 plus people who live locally to where we are. The second year, we saw one more. And let me add that up. One plus one, that's right, two people in two years. I hope you'll have seen more than that in your context, but even the most fruitful among us, surely we're not seeing the kind of progress, the kind of engagement, the kind of fruit that we long to see, that we need to see if we're gonna have the effect that we want to have in the areas that we're laboring. How many people have you seen who have come to you flat out understanding that they are unbelievers? They say to you, I do not believe this stuff that you're talking about, and you've seen them now unashamedly identify with Christ. Far too few, I would hazard a guess, and it's hard. And of course, that's only part of what we're trying to do. That doesn't take into account any of the people who have come and who have wandered off into sin along the way, or others who have just got grumpy because the frustration of the grind in, in, in the ministry that we're all engaged in wears them down and they just, they can't handle it, they're frustrated, they get negative, they get difficult to manage in church life. It's hard. So what do we do about this? Do we get together at a conference like this and rub each other's backs? Uh, do we all feel sorry for ourselves? Do we all get together and, and have a collective kind of sigh, yes? Yeah, that's what we do. Let's pray and we'll go home, will we? (laughs) No, that's not what we do. What we need to do is remind ourselves again of the way that God works in his world. We need to see the struggles and the weakness and the apparent fruitlessness and the apparent failure, as it seems, in light of scripture. In fact, we need to see those things in the context of the cross of Christ. Because when we do that, these things take on a completely different hue. See, when ministry is tough, we're tempted to think that there's something wrong with us. We're not gifted enough. If I was like him, then it would be okay. Or we think there's something wrong with our methods. We're not savvy enough. We're not on the, we're not on the right program. Or there's a problem with another group. If they supported me, if these people got behind me, well then, that would be okay. We're not connected enough. No. We need to do is return to John 19 and see that struggle and weakness and apparent failure is precisely how God brings about his greatest triumph. It is a subversive irony 
of the gospel. John loves irony, doesn't he? If you read John's gospel, you see it again and again. He uses double meanings all the time and he's, he's making these points that constantly you're saying, oh, oh yeah, yeah, and the connections that come there. Nowhere is that more obvious than in this narrative that Athel read for us. Uh, this exchange between Jesus and Pilate and the Jews. You see, when we drill down into this text, when we think deeply about what's going on here, there, there are, I want to give us this afternoon, three ironies, three ironies that will encourage us as we go from here, as we go back to the cool face, as we go back to the slog, as we go back to the day by day by day of pastoral ministry. I wanna help you to hold your nerve and to keep going. So as we look at the players in this story, this little section, I want us to see first of all that the powerful one is really weak. The powerful one is really weak. Pilate, he's the Roman governor. He, uh, he was entrusted with the responsibility to keep the peace and to uphold the law. He has freedoms, he has powers that others do not have. 19 verse 10, he just needs to say the word and he can have somebody executed. That's a lot of power at your disposal. That's precisely why the Jews brought Jesus before him. See, we read this, Pilate is, in theory, the most powerful person in town. But the man that John portrays here is actually a man in complete disarray. Seven times in this section, he goes in and out between Jesus and the Jews. Three times, he publicly asserts Jesus' innocence. You see, verse 38, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. 19 verse four, see I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Again, verse six, take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. Pilate has concluded that Jesus is no threat to Rome. He's no threat to Caesar. He's no threat to anyone else for that matter. He looks pathetic. And so 19 verse 12, he even tries to release Jesus. But he can't stand up for what he knows is right. He can't do what he knows is right. So he's happy to have Jesus flogged, and that wasn't just six of the best. There were people that died as a result of the flogging. It was brutal. He's happy to have Jesus flogged, and of course, those terrible words, desperate words in verse 16, he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Here's a man manipulated by the Jews. He's afraid of this group who stir up this angry mob and play him off against Caesar. And the reason that they can do this is because he's also controlled by Caesar. Manipulated by the Jews, controlled by Caesar. Pilate, when we we meet him at the beginning, has an air of swagger about him, doesn't he? He's making these bold pronouncements and he's saying all kinds of things. Until 19 verse 12, the Jews hit the red button. Caesar's name is mentioned. He's terrified of what might happen if word of revolt gets back to Rome. Pilate is a weak man who passes the unjust, politically motivated, self-interested killing of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, underlying all of this weakness are the words in verse 38. Chapter 18, verse 38. Jesus says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate responds, what is truth? I think the the nature of this interaction here is all about the, the relationship between power and truth. And Pilate here is skeptical. He's a skeptic. He's skeptical about the idea that there is any such thing as objective truth. And this is important for us. 
because although this sort of radical skepticism is present in other contexts, because of the influence of the European philosophers over the last century, it has been the air that much of this continent has been breathing for quite some time now. Pilate's words sound familiar, don't they? They ring so true for all of us. Sounds like many of the people that I'm trying to engage in London, and I know it's not just there. I was speaking to a pastor friend of mine in Brussels, in Belgium last week, and he said, uh, he said this, it was interesting, just in passing he said, um, this whole idea of skepticism about truth is actually the religion of almost all of his friends. It's something that people are devoted to. It's something that people are committed to in terms of the way they think about the world. Exclusive truth claims, it is argued, Well, they're created simply as a way for people or for institutions to exercise power and social control. Michel Foucault, the 20th century, very influential French postmodernist said this, truth is a thing of this world. It is produced only by virtue of multiple forms of constraint and it induces regular effects of power. Foucault taught that truth isn't an objective reality that we have access to, rather it is created by power and institutions of power. Uh, He even used the language of regimes of truth. He's saying claims to truth are simply power plays. So you can see how skepticism comes to life when we, when our churches start to speak about Jesus in the way that the Bible speaks about him. He is the way, the truth, the life. And when we say, um, when we stand up in our cultures, in our contexts and say, no one comes to the Father, no one can come to God except through him. Well, we've just made the truth claim the power play to end them all. And there's no doubt that the church in Europe has used their influence to manipulate and to exploit people. It's the work of a few minutes, really, just to highlight the scandals around the unholy trinity of money, sex, and power in the church. And people can point to those and say, ha-ha, you see. So we are up against it in our context. And we do need to show people very clearly that Jesus reserves his most stinging rebukes for people who use their influence to exploit and to manipulate others for their own gain. But above all, we want the people that we're speaking to to learn the lesson that Pilate teaches us here. Because this is, what he does is shows us here where skepticism about the truth leads. Foucault and others may have said that skepticism is how you avoid being manipulated and exploited. But when you reject the idea of truth, it isn't that you avoid manipulation, but actually it's that manipulation is all that's left. Pilate doesn't know where to stand, does he? Doesn't know what to think. He knows that Jesus is innocent, he suspects that he is king, but he's scared of the Jews, he's scared of Caesar, and in the end he goes through with something that he knows isn't right. His skepticism doesn't liberate him, it doesn't bring him joy, it doesn't bring him relief. Indeed, Eusebius, the church historian, records that he took his own life in suicide. People are radically skeptical about the truth. All that's left is the loudest voice or the strongest pull. All that you have actually is flat out, bald manipulation. Because something else will fill the truth vacuum and become our Lord. and Pull us around and cause us to be devoted to it. John gives us a portrait here of someone who looks powerful but because he has rejected the truth is manipulated and controlled by others. The powerful one is really weak. Number two, the weak one 
is really powerful. The weak one is really powerful. At first glance, Jesus, before Pilate, looks like an innocent victim at the center of a frantic, confused, unjust murder. He certainly is that, but we must again recognize that every detail that unfolds is demonstrating his incredible divine power. Firstly, we see his control. From Jesus' perspective, there are no mistakes as these events unfold. Verse 32, his word is governing all that is going on. Do you see? This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Here is the one who speaks, and it is so. If we read on through the crucifixion account, John points this out again and again. Scripture is being fulfilled through all of these terrible events again and again and again. 19 verse 24, again verse 28, again verse 36, again verse 37. This was to fulfill the Scripture. Everything is coming together exactly as it should. The humble Galilean is in complete control. This is the power of God at work. And we see he's the king. The theme of kingship comes up again and again in the section. Comes up initially in 1832 with one of those double meanings that John is so fond of. See, when he says that phrase, uh, when he refers to the kind of death he was going to die, there's supposedly a bell goes off in our thinking. This takes us back to 1232. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Ah, lifted up is the language of being lifted up on the cross, but it is always, it's also the language of enthronement as the king is installed on his ruling throne. And we're supposed to bring those two together by this stage in John 19 and recognize that Jesus is the king, the one whose kingdom is not from this world. It doesn't run along the lines of military might or corruption. And here he demonstrates his kingly power most clearly as he is lifted up on the cross. It's staggering. Jesus is the king of the universe. Remember, he wasn't just with God. Chapter one, verse one, he was God and is God. And one of the big ironies of this whole section is that everyone is saying it and yet no one can see it. So 19 verses two and three, with all of the mockery of the soldiers, the crown of thorns, the purple robe, hail king of the Jews, they say. Well, it's the king's crown. It's the royal robe. And it is the homage that he deserves. It may be mockery, but every symbol and every word is absolutely true. Pilate, verse 14, behold your king. He no doubt saying it sarcastically. How could this barely recognizable physical wretch be a king? But he speaks better than he knows. And then 19, the sign just a little bit further down from the passage that we read. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. It was custom to put a notice above the head of the criminal to inform passers-by of what they had done to scare them off from doing the same thing. The Jews didn't want it there, but Pilate says, no, let it stand. What is truth? Well, the truth is there for everybody to see in Aramaic, the common language of Judea, in Latin, the language of the army, and Greek, the common language of the empire. Everyone, whatever language they spoke, could see it so clearly written above his head. They saw the sign that with deep irony proclaimed the truth about Jesus, the king. 
See, what's happened here is that the wooden cross has become the king's throne. Soldiers who drive the nails through his hands, mock him with the crown of thorns, put the royal robe on him and all of that fake homage, they laugh at him, hail king of the Jews, pathetic, he says he's the king of the Jews, all that kind of stuff. They do it to the king of the universe. And here's the chilling thing, they're gonna spend eternity subject to him. He's the king. He's also then the judge. Pilate is told explicitly in verse 11, 19 verse 11, that any power that he has is derivative. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. All his authority is God given. Pilate is there on God's watch. What John wants us to see is that as Pilate sits in judgment on Jesus, he is really the one who's in the dock. The, the irony of verse 13 is rich indeed. Pilate is judging. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him down in the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. The place where if, if there was a trial, you would, be, you would sit there and you would be judged for whatever the charge was. Pilate is judging, but he's judging the judge. <laughs> the one before whom everyone will one day stand to give account. Jesus appears weak as he's played off against the hostile crowd, condemned by a self-interested card, mocked and murdered by brutal soldiers and exposed to the shame and disgust of the lowest form of execution. It all looks so weak, but he's not. In and through it all, He is the powerful, sovereign Lord. He is the king whose rule is demonstrated through weakness. Isn't that the paradox of Christianity? Kingdom where the last are first, where the great are servants, and where real strength is seen in weakness. That's just how it is in the kingdom of God. And as pastors, we need to embrace this reality. As those engaged in gospel ministry, we need to embrace this reality. See, I know that we all know it. (laughs) It's not really the case of just having to be reminded of this. Actually, you know this because you know your Bibles. But it's a case of accepting it. We get discouraged and we get frustrated, not because we don't know these theological truths and it's somehow a surprise to us, but because we don't want it to be this way. We want it to be different. Let anyone who would come after me take up his cross and follow me. Let those people who would come after Jesus take up their cross and follow, but I'd like another way. I wish it were not so. Really, for me as well. And when it gets hard, we're tempted to look around at churches that have lots of people, lots of respectable, gifted, shiny people. (laughs) And we look at pastors who have lots of acclaim and we begin to resent them because we think, well, actually, I'm probably more gifted than him. I'm definitely more godly than him. If people really knew what he was like, the things he said, the things he's done, the things I've seen him do, well, and all I have is this, this ordinary, mundane, ragtag church. As he's been pushed around by Pilate, as he's mocked and beaten by the soldiers and then taken out and killed, it doesn't look like Jesus' work is achieving anything. 
But in and through all of this ordinariness and pain and weakness, God is bringing his beautiful, perfect plan together. If we lose our way on this, if we lose sight of this reality, we can get into all kinds of trouble. At a basic level, churches that try and hide their ordinariness by being cool are embarrassing. It's true. There's nothing wrong with trying to do what you do really well, of course, but like the insecure kid at school who's trying to get in with the the cool crowd by doing ridiculous things, the cool crowd, he just makes it a fool of himself. And churches that are trying to look impressive to the culture will always end up looking daft. If you will faithfully preach Christ, you can't avoid the shame or the foolishness of the cross, you can't. And of course, the deeper trouble comes when in a desire to fit in in a culture means that you do avoid the shame and the foolishness of the cross. That's not embarrassing, that's terrible. And the thing is that in Europe, the pressure to do this, to mess around with our message, particularly at this point in, in our kind of, this cultural moment, when the ethics of the Christian gospel cut so radically across the spirit of the age, the temptation to mess around with the message is huge, especially when you're trying to get traction in a new planting context. When you know that to be clear on these things is gonna make you really unpopular. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters, weakness is good. Weakness is okay. In fact, a friend reminded me last week that not only is weakness at the heart of how God does his work, but in our lives it is actually a sign that God is close to us. When we feel weak, we cling to God. When we feel strong, we think we can get the job done ourselves, don't we? When we feel strong, we think actually, I'll I'll take this, I've got this covered, and we keep God at arm's length. When we know we're in need of his help, we cling to him and there's nowhere safer, there's nowhere better, there's nowhere healthier for us than clinging to him in prayer. Let's not forget that the powerful one made himself weak, not Pontius Pilate weak, not manipulated by others, not uh, skeptical about truth and being pushed around from pillar to post weak, but the weakness of a servant. Jesus, the king and judge, the one who's in control of everything embraced that kind of weakness in order to do the work of God in the world. When you're tempted to think that God can't be with you because things are just so tough, remember this. The power of the world is really a position of weakness, but the weakness of God's servant is really a position of strength. And this is so countercultural. This is so what we don't want. This is not what our hearts actually want to embrace. It is so, uh, it goes against so much that we really want to be the case that we'll only take it to heart and we'll only gladly live it out ourselves if we really believe the third irony that I want us to see this afternoon. The third irony, it's this. The one who is crucified is really the king who conquers. The one who is crucified is really the king who conquers. Turn with me to verse 28. John 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, again, see his control, knowing that all was finished, all that had to be accomplished was finished, he said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. 
When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is where John's narrative has been heading really from the off. Those three words, they're one in the original as Jesus gives out his last breath. Words that put the whole ordeal into perspective. It is finished. Those are amongst the most thrilling words that we can hear. Think about the words that that bring you joy in, in life. There are all manner of words that do that. I do. Um, you've passed. I'll get this. <laughs> Those words don't even come close, do they? Because when Jesus cried out in a loud voice, tetelestai, it is finished. It is his cry of victory. How is this possible? Surely death by means of crucifixion is a sign that the individual has been cursed by God. Well, as I'm sure you'll have told your people many times, look again at the words he says, not I am finished, but it is finished. He's saying that the plan and the purpose of God to send me to earth to die for sinful people has been accomplished. Literally it is, it is accomplished. And that is amazing. At the moment when he can't move, pinned to a cross, caked in blood, he cries, it's accomplished, I've done it all. The moment when Christ has no ability to do anything is the moment that he announces that he has done everything. And so verse 30, he can give up give up, literally he can um, hand over his spirit to his father. No one took Jesus' life from him. On the cross he's still in charge. It's not the nails that kept him there. He's the one with the authority to lay down his life of his own accord. And here's the thing, he did. The Passover lamb has been slain and so the king has conquered. Satan, defeated. Sin, defeated. Death, defeated. The infinite gap between God and sinful humanity has been bridged. And just as water and blood stream from Jesus' side as the spear is thrust into his body, so in his death, the streams of living water that he promises to all who trust in him begin to flow. See, this is why Jesus says in 18, well, when he says in chapter 18, verse 37, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. This is why when he says that, it's not a power play. You see, it might sound like the biggest power play of them all. Everyone who listens to the truth listens to my voice. But, It's because on the cross he shows us how he puts his power to use. He uses his power to become powerless. He walks voluntarily into weakness in order to accomplish forgiveness and cleansing and salvation for all who would believe. There is nothing, we read this, there is nothing about this sorry scene that looks like success. 
well, it looks like success for the Jews. Looks like success for, well, it doesn't really look like success for Pilate, does it? But it doesn't look like success for Jesus. And it doesn't look like success for the purpose of the church that he said he was going to build. A bullied, bloodied, brutalized man. And yet this is God's means of saving the world. So brothers and sisters, when your weakness takes you to the very edge, behold the man. You know, Pilate said that, he was incredulous. Holding up a bloody Jesus to the Jews. Here's the man that you find so dangerous. But that's the irony. He is the man. He's the word became flesh. He's the God man. He's the one who is full of grace and truth, displaying his glory, the glory of the one and only son to the world. And he does it through weakness and through apparent failure. The one who is crucified is really the king who conquers. This is how God works. So as you go from here this afternoon, behold the man. He's your justification, he's your righteousness. So you don't need to prove yourself to anyone else, not your spouse, not your peers, not your church, not your donors, not even yourself. Behold the man, he's your power. The only one through whom your labors will be effective. Behold the man, he is your hope. He is the one who will never leave you or forsake you in the fight. He is the one who has promised that he will build his church such that the gates of hell will never prevail. And as you behold the man, you'll be energized, you'll be motivated, you will be, you will be turned around again and sent out to go on engaging with your religious or your secular neighbors, to go on being a faithful presence in the midst of all that they're doing for the glory of Christ. And so then you can keep calling your village or your town or your city to behold the man themselves. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you might give us a deep appreciation of all that he has done for us in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. And we pray that where you meet us this afternoon, whatever point we're at, whether we're in despair, whether we're encouraged, or anywhere in between, we pray that you might take us again afresh to Christ, that we might see him, that we might rejoice in all that we have in him, and that we might go out in his power to proclaim him to those who desperately need to hear. And we pray that in the, in the days, in the weeks, in the months ahead, you might use us to open, to see blind eyes open, to see deaf ears unstopped, and to see hearts turned from stone to flesh. And we pray this in his powerful name. Amen.